All right. Hebrews chapter 8. If you're there, I'm going to just read the first three verses, but please stand with me as we do so. Follow along in your Bibles or your phones and tablets. The writer says, now this is the main point. This is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. All right, we'll pause there and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing that we can gather this morning. Lord, we thank you even for the rain, a reminder of your grace, of your provision, for the farmers, for the flowers, Lord, for our food. You're so good to us. And Lord, this morning as we gather and we sang earlier, think about Paul's words, how we have been crucified with Christ. And now it's our life is hidden Jesus. And it's really no longer we who live, but truly it's your spirit that resides in us. And by faith, now the life we live, we live in Christ and we live for Christ. And so God, draw our attention to Jesus this morning. Draw our hearts closer to you. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello, and then you can have a seat. So one of the things that I truly enjoy, especially when I get to work, at VBS in the parking lot, is uh, just having the opportunity to get to know people, uh, getting to know many of you better, and just having little conversations, and, and just hearing part of your story and part of your life. And, and I do count it as a tremendous privilege and, and blessing and honor that you would be willing to share that uh, with me, and, and really just to share this season of life together. It, it, it is a blessing. And, and one of the things that I like about it is I, I just find it kind of fun. I find it fascinating to learn about different people and learn their stories. And sometimes they're a little bit scandalous. Like, like for example, I won't say who they are, but there's at least four of us who have been in jail before. Right? Uh, I'll let you figure out who those people are. But, um, but I love to hear like how you met your spouse or the places you've lived or the jobs that you had or where you grew up. And, and of course, then what you do now and some of the hobbies that you might enjoy. And, and I realize that there, you know, there are many descriptors that are true for your life, and, and in a time, I just get a glimpse of them, you know, of who you are. There's different roles and responsibilities, there's titles, there's uh, just different things about us, right? and a, a wide variety, you think about them, you know, between mom or dad or aunt and uncle or brother and sister or teacher and student or sergeant or lieutenant, uh, you know, surfer, photographer, translator, you know, the list goes on. Whether you're a morning person or you're an introvert, 
Uh, some of you uh, love to self-inflict by, you know, you love running, uh, you know, self-inflicted pain. Baker, uh, you know, sofa, civilian, I mean, uh, New Yorker or Oregonian, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And, and it's just, it's been fun to, you know, it's fun just to get to learn people. Well, throughout the scriptures, we encounter hundreds of descriptors and that give us a glimpse of who Jesus is. And there are many attributes of God revealed in the various adventures, in the various encounters, in various people and places, and in the things that God has created or ordained all throughout the Bible. And, and some of those things speak directly to the nature of God, that He is loving, He is kind, uh, His mercies are new every morning. And there are other things that are symbolic. There are other things that are analogies, they're illustrations, they are pictures. And it's in each of these pictures that we get a portrait, or are part of a portrait really, a piece of a portrait of who God is. And ultimately, that picture comes into focus when Jesus comes, God who comes then in flesh, Emmanuel. And Jesus then walks and talks and lives and, and interacts with people. In fact, you remember as we're making our way through the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us plainly back in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the express image of God. In the Gospels, when the disciples were trying to figure out what Jesus was saying and what did he mean that he had to leave, Philip would say to him, well, just show us the Father, it'll be enough. And Jesus responds to Philip in John 14, 9 and says, Philip, haven't I been with you this long? Don't you know that to see me is to see the Father? To know me, it is to know the Father? You know, just as uh, each of the various titles or roles or descriptions that you have that describe your life become a composite picture of who you are, the same is true for our Savior. We have these pictures or portraits of Christ throughout Scripture, and they, they basically work together like a puzzle. It completes the picture of who our God is. And so when we see Him described as our Good Shepherd, one who calls us by name, who lays down his life for us. We, we have a, a picture of, of who Christ is, one part of that. When he's described as the, the master potter who shapes our lives and molds our lives, who has the, the work of perfection in his mind, who then sees us in that, even though we don't often see ourselves as that, but God does. Or that he's the light of the world where all things are seen, where all things are exposed. There's no shadows, there's no turning, there's no darkness. Where the Bible says that Jesus is our chief cornerstone, where the building of our life and our, of our faith is set firm. He is the anchor of our hope, that He keeps us steadfast and steady in all of the craziness in this life and all of the things that we get exposed to the storms that come our way, and He keeps us steadfast. Or even as we sang earlier, all those beautiful titles of Him, the Lamb of God and the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the coming King, the Prince of Peace, the God of all comfort, the source of our wisdom, our strong tower, the rock of ages. The list goes on and on. In fact, do you remember that scene? It's in Luke 24, I believe, and it's the afternoon after Jesus has resurrected, the very first Easter Sunday. And there's these two disciples who are on the road and they're walking away from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And they're really bummed out and they thought, well, Jesus died, all hope is lost. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus shows up, although they don't recognize him. And it's kind of curious as to why. Perhaps they were just looking down. They're so bummed out about what has happened. And, and the Lord shows up and, and basically says, my paraphrase, hey, why so glum, chums? And their response is, what are you, new? <laughs> Don't you know what's been happening? They killed, they crucified the one that we believed was going to save us. All hope is gone. And Jesus began to walk with them and talk with them. And, and we read in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them all of the scripture concerning himself. Man, I wish Luke would have recorded some of that for us. A great reminder again that all of it, all of scripture is about Jesus. All of the pictures and places and people, it all points us to Christ. They become part of the portrait of who Jesus is and all of it points us to the Lord. And here in the book of Hebrews, we have been looking at, we have been reading, we have been considering this other portrait, another portrait. The writer of Hebrews has been taking his time to carefully gather some of the pictures of the Old Testament from the priesthood, from the sacrificial system, from the Mosaic law, and he's putting them together to make, well, a different type of mosaic, A picture, a composite of this is our Messiah. This is our Jesus. Well, this past week I got to talk to the very delightful Law family and I learned that they liked puzzles. And I thought, oh, I don't like puzzles, but okay, that's all right. I'm a fan of eight-piece puzzles, but anything more than that, I'm done. Right? And in many ways, I, I think the writer of Hebrews is is finding, if you will, these Old Testament puzzle pieces, and he's putting them together to reveal the picture of how Jesus is our high priest and how he completes the picture. God had the picture on the box, if you will. And now the writer comes to chapter 8 and tells us, here's the box, here's the picture on the box, here's the main point of what we've been trying to get at. Here's, and he basically kind of summarizes a lot of what we've already studied. And then he's going to move on from this. But in, in many ways, chapter 8 really is just a, a pause. Let's check for understanding in this very involved dialogue or explanation of who Jesus is. Yeah, we do that sometimes. You're having a conversation. You stop. You want to check for understanding or people tracking with you? Are they nodding? Are they, or are they checking on their phone? You know, you're looking for some kind of affirmation. I do that. And sometimes I see you guys, you're just deep in prayer for me. Thank you. <laughs> Blesses me. You know, some pastors love the phrase, can I get an amen? Right? 
I, I, I'm afraid that no one will give me an amen, so I don't ask for one. But anyway. <laughs> the entire chapter is a summary. The writer wants us to grasp this. Let's check for understanding. Let's check for comprehension. And then we're going to move on to grabbing more puzzle pieces to put together. So what is the picture on God's box, if you will, of the Old Testament priesthood box? What's the picture that he's wanting to form for us? Well, verse 1 is the picture. We have a great high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What an amazing picture for us. What an amazing reality that God has given to us that we have when we have Jesus. And I love that phrase that he uses. Here's the main point of things that we're saying. We have this. We have such a great high priest or a high priest. Gang, the reason that we have a high priest, and I would add this, the reason that we have anything is because God gave it. Is because God has provided. The reason that we have Jesus as our high priest is because Jesus, because God gave him as his son. In fact, we'll just make that a point for us. Hopefully one will cultivate a, a sense of gratitude in us that we, the reason we have anything is because God gave it. And the reason that God gave it, the Bible tells us very plainly, is because God loves you. Because God loves you. I mean, the very breath in your lungs, the food on your table, the clothes on your back, the shoes on your feet, the job that you have, the family that you have. I mean, all, all of those material things, certainly, but even beyond that, the, the friendships that we get to form and forge on this side of eternity, and the very fact that our name is written in the book of life, the salvation that you have. The only reason you and I have anything at all in this life is because God has given it to us. And we have a high priest. Jesus is our Savior. He is our shepherd. He is our strong tower. He is our cornerstone. And He is our high priest. Yet another picture of who He is. And it reminds us then of who Christ is. And that picture reminds us of where Christ is, who He is and where He is and what He does for us. The fact that He is seated in the heavens. Do you, do you know anyone who perhaps uh, is higher up in a company or, or, or maybe higher rank in the military, since we have a lot of military folks here? You, you know them personally. Like you have their email or their phone number, their cell, their, their home phone on your phone. And if you call them or you see them in the store, like they would know your first name. You, you have those kind of connections. And you know, sometimes because you, you, you know someone uh, in a position of authority, in a position of responsibility, because you can access them quicker than others, right, sometimes your friends or family will ask you, hey, can you, can you hook me up? Can you call them for me? Uh, we have a friend in Southern California. He is the, the Leeds production, a Leeds production engineer for Disneyland. 
And because we know Steve, and we've known Steve for a few years now, a couple years ago when we took the family to Southern California, uh, Steve called up and said, hey, why don't you come to Disneyland and we'll, I can get you in for free, the whole family. That's a, Steve's a nice person to know. Right? <laughs> Especially now, like you've you got to take a small loan out to go to Disneyland now. Right? And so we went there and Steve walked out and basically just walked us right through the gates, right into the Magic Kingdom. And I'm like, hey, Steve, can you hook me up with a churro? And, uh, but he wasn't that high up. That's the thing. He wasn't that high up. Right, this verse reminds us that we have Jesus as our high priest that we know personally, that we can call, that is on our speed dial, if you will, that knows you by first name, who is in the highest position in the universe. And we learned back in chapter 4 that as followers of Christ, having come into a relationship with Him, then you and I have been given a full access pass where we can come boldly into God's presence, boldly into the throne room of grace where you and I can find help and mercy and anything that we need in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16. And this is where Jesus is, seated on this throne in a place of the highest honor. And seated, by the way, because the work is finished. All that he accomplished, all that he came to do, he accomplished. He, he prayed there in John 17, Father, I've done what you've gave, given me to do. Right? That same rest we learned about in the earlier chapters, and we get to enter into that rest. place of peace and a place of rest. It's a, it's a picture that reminds us that Jesus isn't pacing the hallways of heaven wondering what's going to happen to you. He's not biting his nails thinking, oh no, what's going to happen now with the coronavirus? Understand, listen, he's got you. And the Bible reminds us or told us plainly last Time as we read, he always lives to make intercession for you. And so this picture on the box, it means something for us, if you will. This reality that we have, Jesus as our high priest, who is seated at a place of honor, who is in the, the highest uh, place in all the universe, in the heaven of heavens. What do you need today? What are you looking for? I could say, oh, I, I, I know a guy. But listen, so do you. You have all access to God's kingdom. And all that weighs heavy on your heart, all that burdens your brain, all of the mental chess games that you play about, okay, if we go here and this is our orders or this is what I put in my papers or here comes school, listen, you can give all of that to the Lord. And God's so good because the Bible tells us in exchange, He then gives you His peace. He gives you His wisdom. He reveals His will to you. And so this 
declarative statement that we have, the main point, that we have a high priest who's seated in the heavens, the right hand of the throne of the majesty means that you and I have all access to God's kingdom anytime that we need for anything that we need. He continues this picture. We also have a minister. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Here's another portrait, if you will. Here's another facet that describes who Jesus is. He's a minister. In the original Greek, it's the word leitergos. And it means a servant of the state, or it means a servant of the holy things. And and just that descriptor of, of Jesus as a minister reminds us then of his ministry. It reminds us of the nature of Christ. Because although he is seated in the heaven of heavens, as though, and, and, and as, what I'm trying to say, and even though he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he sits on heaven's throne, we're also reminded of the nature of our King. He is a humble servant who is willing to come who's willing to put on the form of a bondservant, to come in the likeness of man, to humble himself, willing to suffer, and and willing, and he did, and he died for you and for me. And so this picture of Christ reminds us of who he is. He is the epitome of what a servant is and should be, but also, I would add, just he becomes an example then of what we are also to be. He's the epitome of a servant, but he's also the example of one, and one that we're called to emulate, we're called, we're called to follow. In John chapter 13, it's that scene where Jesus is in the upper room, it's the last supper, and by the way, we'll have communion at the close of our service, and You remember as they begin, they enter into the room and Jesus, we're told, he he takes off his cloak, he takes the towel and he begins to then to wash the disciples' feet. That was the job for the the, the house servant. And Peter is the most vocal. He kind of pushes back and says, no, you're not washing my feet. Remember the Lord says, Peter, no, I, I need to do this. If I don't, you have no part of me. And then the then Peter's like, okay, just give me the whole bath then, the whole shebang. Let's go ofudo right now, right? And after he's done, he gets up, and, and it was an object lesson for them. He, it was practical. He did it as an example, but he says so. He says, you know, you guys, you, you call me teacher, you call me rabbi, and, and rightly so. You recognize me in that way, and I am. But because I am, and so as I am, your Lord and your teacher. And if I've washed your feet, listen, I gave you an example, then you should wash other people's feet. I gave you an example, not just in feet washing, mind you, but the example of being willing to be a servant, being willing to put yourself at the lowest place to bless other people. He said, I give you an example that I have done for you. 
In Mark chapter 10, Jesus would call them together and he would say, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, you guys know how they roll. They love to be the boss. They love to lord over their other people by their authority and their titles. The superiors love to exercise authority of them, but he offers this interesting contrast. He says, but for you, let it not be that way. Whoever wants to become great among you, they must become the servant. And if you want to be the greatest of all, Jesus says, then learn to be the servant of all. What a great example that he's set for us. And yet here, as we read in verse 2, it becomes another picture of who the Lord is. He's a minister of the sanctuary. But notice this interesting phrase the writer Hebrew adds, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now remember the original audience, they are Jewish Christians, right? They're Messianic Jews, hence the title of the book or the letter, Hebrews. And these Hebrew Christians would know exactly what the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the temple was. You remember that the tabernacle, if you will, was the, the first installment. It was the temporary installment before the temple came. And the tabernacle essentially was just a giant tent. God gave Moses the blueprint of how to build it all. The dimensions, what wood to use, what metals to use, the furniture that was supposed to go in there how to make the curtains, the different layers, very specific, very detailed on how it was to be constructed. And so Moses, in one sense, became the general contractor. And then he hired specialized craftsmen, men and women, to build, to sew, to hammer out, to make the furniture, all of the parts and pieces so that the tabernacle in the wilderness could be constructed. It was the Levites, their job was then to put it up and pack it and take it down and pack it up and carry it. And so the tabernacle became the the mobile command center where the presence of God in His glory would show up in a very visual, demonstrative way. Later on, King David would want to make a permanent place of worship. He would say, oh, why why am I dwelling in this beautiful palace when the presence of God dwells in a tent? You might remember the account, though. God says to David, I appreciate your intentions and offers, but you're not going to build it. Your son Solomon will. But David got all of the materials. He, He... got all of the craftsmen, he got all of the wood, he got all of the things, and Solomon would build that temple, the first temple. Now, both of those buildings were man-made. And it's believed that even at the time of the writing of this letter, that the temple was still standing because of the phraseology that the writer uses, describing it still as active and not in the past. But here, as he's writing about Jesus as the high priest, 
he mentions then Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle. And then later on in chapter 9, and so we won't unpack this fully right now, he's going to explain what did he mean by the true tabernacle. How there was a man-made earthly tent, tabernacle, and temple, and how all of that was also a picture of Jesus. And the reason why God was so exacting, so detailed, was because each part, each facet represents Jesus, who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so the writer is going to tell us that's why God was so detailed in that. That's why Moses and Solomon had to build it exactly like God told them to. Every part was necessary. Every part was vital. And it's, a, it's an exciting study, and I'm looking forward to when we get there. You know, one summer many, many years ago, uh, when I lived here as a younger teenager, and back then on base, they had the summer hire program. It was like the military's version of child slave labor. I think I got paid like two fifteen an hour. Man, crazy. They got their money's worth out of us too. But anyways, so I got to work at Torrey Beach every summer, which was an amazing job. And, and MWR back then had us high school kids uh, build a playground for the little kids. It was just a bunch of us high schoolers. So they dropped off all the pieces, and it was like, remember the old school ones? They're like log, they're like Lincoln, like giant Lincoln logs. They had like a tire swing and a little rope thing. And so here we are, we have to build this, this playground for these kids. And so the four high school boys that we were, like we, we built it all, and then when we were done, we had all of these leftover pieces and bolts. <laughs> but we didn't want to tell anybody, so we just threw them away. <laughs> I don't think it was built according to plan. Like I, I kind of suspect, though, those parts and pieces were necessary somewhere. Now, all of it becomes a picture. The true tabernacle, a picture of the true tabernacle. And again, we'll get to more of that in chapter 9. We're told, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary. That's another interesting phrase. It was necessary that this one also have something to offer. Okay, so we're told something that every good Hebrew person would know. That an important part of the priest's job was to offer gifts and sacrifices, both of those things. And it was an integral part of the worship service. In addition to them packing and cleaning and inspecting homes and, and sores, this was a part of their job. They would offer both the sacrifices that individuals, you came as you messed up and had to confess your sins, and then there was a sacrifice that was made, and or the various free will offerings are called, these gifts that people would bring just to love the Lord and be a blessing to the Lord and to the priesthood. And both of those things were part of their job. And both of those things would cost something to the people. 
It was a gift. It was a sacrifice. I mean, that's the definition of a sacrifice. Fast forward to today, as followers of Christ today, as those who worship the Lord today, giving is still an important part of our worship. And it's not that God needs the money. You know, I'm grieved like you are when you hear of different ministries and and if I can call them so-called pastors and spiritual leaders, portray God as though He's broke. Or as though, you know, their ministry won't survive another day unless, you know, people give money. It makes me question, what, what is that ministry then built on? You know, where, where is the trust? But at the same time, right, the Lord moves in our hearts. It's biblical. Uh, we give unto the Lord as the Lord has provided to us. And so even today as worshipers of God and followers of Christ, it's not that the Lord needs the cash, but, but I do believe God knows well that we can easily fall in love with money in the pursuit of money. I mean, the Lord talked a lot about money and the fact that we can't serve two masters. And sometimes, and it's easy, you know, we begin to love things and love money and the pursuit of money even though we more, we, more than we love the Lord. And because God's interested in our hearts and God is interested in the, having the right attitude, I mean, that's why the Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. So if, we're, if we have a bad attitude about it or we're begrudgingly giving, uh, I think the, God would say, it's okay, keep your dollar until you're good. <laughs> and so we want to cultivate a joyful generosity here at Calvary, individually and for us as a church, to give back to God what He so graciously provided for us. You know, there are three great commodities of our life today, and it looks different than it looked back in the Old Testament. We're not necessarily bringing sheep and turtle doves and goats and rams and these things. But the things that are of value for us today are your time, your talents, and your treasures. And each of those categories, you know, God wants us to be good stewards of our time and talents and treasures. And each of us are going to stand before God and give an account of what we did with our time and talents and treasures. And he wants us to be wise investors of those things that he has so generously provided for us. And so this verse reminds us of what, again, the Hebrews would know that part of the function of the priest was to worship the Lord through their giving. And it's still true for us today. And, and I realize in, in the season of our life, it's going to look different. How much time you have, or talent you might have, or money that you might have. You know, when I was younger, I had a lot more energy. Uh, I had a lot more time, but I, I've never had any talent. And I didn't have a lot of money back then. You know, I, like many of you, like I, you know, top ramen and corned beef hash were the Uh, the staples of my meals. (laughs) But I had time to mow the lawn, and I had time to help, 
you know, vacuum the church, and I had time to go with the pastor to funerals and hospital visits, and, and so that's, that's where I gave of my time. And so we, we get to give back a portion of what God has provided. This verse reminds us of that, and I'd add in just to cultivate a joyful generosity. Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I don't think I have to belabor the point. I, I mean, just this past week, you experienced that at VBS as you gave of your time and your energy and of your resources. And I trust in faith that I have no doubt that God then filled you spiritually and blessed you, that what you received by giving was more than what you gave out. That's how the Lord works, right? We can never outgive God. Amen? Can I get amen? All right. What else does he say that's really interesting? He says, for if he, speaking of Jesus, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest. Why? Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed, right, God gave him the blueprints when he was about to make their tabernacle, for then God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so here's another curious thought the writer introduces to us, that if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. And so we're going to ask, okay, why not? What, what's the difference there? And he explains. The, the priests of the Old Testament would administer their own gifts and gifts to the people. But the writer says that if Jesus was in that Old Testament system, then he wouldn't be a priest. And we already know part of that because he wasn't from the tribe of Aaron. He wasn't a Levite. But even beyond that, he explains that since the priests who offer gifts according to the Old System, the Old Testament... And the writer tells us again what he's already told us, and it's a copy, it's a shadow, it's just, it's a beta mode, it's the first installment of heavenly things. And because Jesus is eternal, he wouldn't fit into that temporary system. The pattern that God wanted, it, it wouldn't work. It's important, but it wouldn't work. The pattern that the Lord gave to Moses and all of the priesthood, it's the pieces of the puzzle that you put together that give us a portrait of Christ. And last week, if you're with us, remember we made the point already that the old system wasn't going to work with the new priest. Nor could the new system work with the old priesthood. The old goes with the old and the new goes with the new. So the new system needs a new leader, and the old system had its old priests. You know, after service last week, I, I was chatting with Jeff, and he came up and reminded me of this great verse in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus basically is saying the same thing. He says, hey, no one takes, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And he explains why. Because if he does, the new piece 
right? When it washes and dries, it's going to pull away, you know, from the old, and then the the the, the tear is going to be make it's going to make a uh, you know a tear. It's going to result in you know ruining it. And then he adds to the example, and he says, and no one takes new wine and pours them into old wineskins. He says, if he does the the new wine as it's fermenting, as it expands, it's going to bust the old wineskins because they're rigid. There's no room for them to, to, to you know, expand along with the fermentation. And he says, okay, if you do that, then the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Instead, you take new wine and you pour them into new wineskins. The old can't handle the new. The new thing that God wanted to do was to usher in a new covenant. And in order to usher in a new covenant, it needed a, a new leader. It needed a new priest, a new type of servant to accomplish that. And that's why he says if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. He wouldn't fit into that system. And then he adds, but now, verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Here's another descriptor. He's the minister. Now he's the mediator of a better covenant which established on better promises. Can you please understand that God never intended for you to enter a relationship with Him based upon rules and regulations and rituals. That wasn't the intention. Those systems... The Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system was established to showcase the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God. But at the same time, to demonstrate then the reality of, of man's and women's, of people's sinfulness. By that system, it then demonstrates the constant need to have to make sacrifice every time you blow it. Not just putting, you know, a marble in the swear jar or coins in the, uh, you know, talking back jar. It, it's any and every time you sin, there's a sacrifice that's being made. And so there's just this constancy to it. And so that in itself becomes then a sobering reminder of our constant sin, of our constant need to have to be forgiven and atoned for. It's a reminder of what sin costs. The fact that you would take this innocent animal, confess your sins by transference on this innocent life, and then watch as it then is killed in your place. That's a graphic visual of what the Bible declares for us, the wages of our sin is death. And so that whole system is designed to showcase the glory of God and to be a sobering reminder that we're not holy. The fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But then verse 6 says, but now... The great truth, well, the truth, I should say, of our great despair 
is eclipsed by the truth of our greater declaration of God's gift of grace. That is the reality. That's bad news. That's the reality. And yet here's a, I don't know if it's a greater reality. Is that the right way to say it? Here's a reality, here's a reality, a reality that's greater. Maybe that's the better way to say it. But, but God, but now, because Jesus came, because of what Jesus has done for us. In fact, even both of those verses I quoted earlier in Romans 3 and Romans 6, they have a pivot point. The, the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God, 623 the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all fall short of the glory of God, 323, 324. But we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. It's declarative of who we once were, that we once lived this way. We once were but, but God in His great mercy who loved you. See, but now Jesus has entered into, obtained this excellent ministry. He's the mediator of it, a better covenant, a better promise, and we then get to come into that. As glorious as the old system was to display the goodness of God and the glory of God, the ministry of Christ then rises above that old system. And then Jesus opens the door for us. We then enter into a better covenant, a better promise. And why is it better? Because it's all contingent upon God and His faithfulness. Everything that God did. Have you heard that saying, it's, it sounds too good to be true? Have you heard that saying before? And sometimes we'll say, if it sounds too good to be true, probably because it is. Right? And I think that's true of, of earthly things. But you know what? It is absolutely true of the gospel. It sounds too good to be true, and yet it is true. That while you and I were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for you by sending Christ to live and die for you. And then you and I get to enter in then to this better covenant established on better promises. And then the writer just drives the point home. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, if the first covenant would have been good enough to bring us to God, then there would be no reason, no place would have existed then for a second one to come. Again, he reviewed that already. He told us that already. If the old system was sufficient, then there would be no need for a new one. How do we know this? What does the writer do then for the rest of the chapter? And we can close here. He quotes scripture. He goes to the Bible in Exodus chapter 25, and he uses the Bible, the scripture, to solidify his point. And I'm going to just rephrase a point that we made before. 
Listen, gang, it's always good. It's best for us to have a biblical reason for why we do what we do. It's best for us to have a biblical foundation for why we believe what we believe. To be able to say, the Bible says. I do this because the Bible says. I believe this because the Bible says. And to make sure we understand what the Bible says. Because sometimes we think, well, the Bible says this, but then we realize, no, the Bible doesn't say that, right? You shall not wrestle your neighbor. The Bible doesn't say that. Even though Nacho said it said that. It doesn't. He quotes scripture to demonstrate and prove his point. Verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So God makes this promise. That's the promise. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the wilderness, or excuse me, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. The people couldn't hang because they're sinful. He goes on to say, And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for this, for, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. God says, I will remember no more. The Bible says that God established this system and people couldn't follow it. To be guilty of one point of the law was to be guilty of it all. And here's the thing God knew it, God saw that it was going to happen. And God said, I make a promise. I'm going to bring something, a new thing, an opportunity for, for my people and even all of the people to enter into a new relationship with me. When, when Christy and I married, we, we signed a paper that was our wedding certificate. But on the wedding certificate, there weren't contractual terms. There weren't. Uh, you know, uh, like she was going to do these things or I was going to do these things. Now, we had the blessing to be married in a church and there we made promises and we exchanged an oath. We declared it on a wedding day. But our daily interaction for the past 24 years hasn't been built on legal conditions of a contract but it's been built on just loving companionship. I can't go to her and say, you violated the terms of our contract when you threw your slipper at me. <laughs> Paragraph 2, verse 3 says, no throwing chanclas <laughs> or zodis at your husband. Look, you broke the contract. It's just relationship. And she says, sorry for throwing chunklas at me because she loves me. Right? So what, what is the big point as we close today? Don't throw your shoes at loved ones. No, that's not, that's not the point. Here's the point. Here's, 
And it's a good one. Listen, God seeks a relationship with you. That, that, all of that, those verses that he's quoting, that's the whole point. God wants a relationship with you. God has done everything to make that possible. It is a gift that God bought with the blood of his own son, and he wants you to receive it. And it's a reminder to the Hebrews that this was God's plan from the beginning. It's not religion. It's not rules. It's not legal contracts. It's not performance-based evaluations. It is to be in a loving relationship with the God of all the universe, to experience the fullness of His grace and His love and His mercy. That's what God wants for you. And that is why Jesus came. And this morning, very quickly, we get to be reminded of that as we have this time of communion, a very tangible thing, the reminder that God so loved you, He gave His Son for you, a reminder, uh, this is our act of worship, a sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of time, a response to God initiating this relationship, and then inviting you and I to have this identity as God's chosen. And so, let's do that. We'll do that quickly. That's biblical. They did it quickly. All right, come on up, you guys. We'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for your goodness. God, thank you that we get to see the picture on your box. Of all of these portraits of our Jesus, and this very beautiful one, that we have a high priest. The work is completed. He's seated. And we have a God that we can know, that we can call upon at any time. In the highest place of all the universe, who invites us first to have relationship with him to know you, God, as, as our God, as a Father, as our Savior. And to then walk in that relationship. Lord, I pray as we have this time of worship now that, Lord, we'll just reaffirm that with our, for ourselves of our identity, of, of who we are because of who you are. May it be an act of worship and of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.